Welcome everybody to this episode of the ChiefCast. It's part of our Meet the Faculty series where we talk to uh, our faculty members and learn about them, learn about their trajectory. Uh, and I'm very excited to talk today with uh, Dr. Patricia Finn. So Dr. Finn is our department head um, and she has, you know, leading us for, 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 for many years, as you will, will hear, uh, but also through these difficult times as well. Um, so challenging times, and uh, it's great to have great leadership. Uh, but the purpose of the ChiefCast and the Meet the Faculty is to really get to know um, the faculty member, who they are, where they came from, why they chose their career, what has changed in medicine throughout their career. Um, and with that, um, Dr. Finn, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alfredo. It's completely my pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, want to correct something uh, in that uh, Alfredo said many years, and I would hope that it would be many years. It's actually been seven, I think. So that's kind of a lucky number. And I can give you a bit of the trajectory of how I got here. Um, the first thing I wanted to say, and I know that we don't want to go through titles and biosketch and all that. That's what I call you know, sort of pieces of paper. I, I'm, I want to emphasize that uh, whether you are hearing me as a, an intern or a faculty member or a student or a staff, I usually introduce myself as a pulmonologist, so that's my trade. I care desperately about lung disease and all other types of diseases. I'm an immunologist, that's my training. And then I care desperately about health equality. And I'm, I feel very strongly that those are not separate pieces. Those are really tied together and integral, um, as I think for all of us. We don't uh, really dissect those parts, and it's part of who we are as humanity. And it's the better part of what I think is UIC, that I can fully be myself with all of those parts here. Um, shall I talk about how we started? I can do anything. Absolutely. <laughs> Where, what's your hometown, Dr. Finn? I am going there. Okay, so I am a New York City born and bred, <clears throat> uh, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a flavor. So I'm actually a dual citizen of Ireland. Um, my mother and father were born in Ireland, complete with brogues that could not be understood. So uh, sometimes you'll occasionally hear me roll with some R or some odd word that comes out, and that's all in my Irish background. Um, my mother and father uh, came from a very, very small village in, in Ireland, uh, and they did not go to school past third grade. Third grade. So that has a lot to do with sort of my emphasis on education and my commitment to learn and read. What they had was an incredible passion for respect for humanity and for each other. I was raised as a Catholic. I think that that was also imbued in the sense that we really do have to be kind to each other. Um, my mother and father, uh, we grew up on the, what is called East Village, Lower East Side, um, uh, you know, the, the Alphabet City, ABC. For those of you who know, through those derivations, when I grew up, it was a really tough neighborhood, meaning it was going through some changes, not only in um, diversity, but also there was a fair amount of violence and, um, uh, drug, uh, drug, uh, I won't say cartels, but it's interesting. So that really, I think, informed me as to what is danger, what is violence, but what is incredible humanity, because within all that occurs a sense of each other. 
And I will say in my home, it was like a little Ireland. One had to be with respect and discipline. And that was on the fifth floor of a walk up um, in this neighborhood. So I think no matter where you are, you carry that sense of respect. And that's what I carry from my parents. Um, I am the youngest of four. We lost my older brother to an illness uh, actually at Bellevue in New York City. And I think that may have really been one of the reasons why I decided I needed to work in the medical field somewhere. I know that had been really a heartbreaking for my parents and that was sort of carried through. Um, I'm the only physician anywhere in my family. So for all others thinking about, wait, how do we navigate this? I can completely understand. I wanna go back to one thing, which is to understand each other culturally. Um, it, it took me a while to understand that even within all of our cultures, we have these little signals that are interesting. So you may not know this, but what is the plural of you when you are an Irish person, Alfredo? I bet you don't know. The plural of you is ye. So are ye going? And I would use that throughout my life and didn't understand that that is not actually a formal way of duplicate. So just to let you know, we all carry this with us. Anyway, grew up in New York City, um, went to school. One thing you should know is that I really wanted to go to Bronx High School of Science. I was accepted there. Um, that was kind of the beginning passions. And my parents were concerned that if I did that, I would be stepping away from my religion and my culture. And so um, my mother made it very clear that that would be heartbreaking for her. I did not go there, but that shows you sort of the changes that probably solidified why I became a scientist. So thinking about what your parents say you can't do may have impact on what you uh, eventually will do. Um, I then decided in staying uh, how I would deal with healthcare is that I thought I would become a family practitioner. That was uh, really important to me. I actually uh, throughout my evolution did some very long and wonderful rotations in family practice. I loved being the primary care provider, you know, when somebody was, you know, um, had fallen under a tree and we had to deal with it. Somebody else got shot on a hunting trip. I love dealing with all of that. But I think this is where you have to find your heart and passion. At some point, and this is while I was uh, actually in the Bronx taking care of a young, um, a Latina woman with asthma, I realized I didn't understand anything about asthma and needed to understand more. I didn't understand the immune pathways. By this time I had been through medical school and realized I knew very little about it. That actually propelled me to take a, a, a look at what it was like to be in investigative discovery mode. I never saw myself as what we call a scientist, but I think that's also, um, we, we put ourselves in these buckets. And I think the incredible joy about a, a career in medicine is you can be many things at different times. It can evolve and change. It's an iterative process. It's so wonderful. You can craft it any way you want to be. And at that point, I, I thought, well, I, I, I really love taking care of patients, but let me have a trial in a lab where I can begin to investigate what it looks like at a very basic molecular pathway. And that's where I talk about the immune, immunology part. My experience in the lab, to be honest, was pretty much an object failure for the first two years, just so you know. Uh, but the people in that lab um, were kind and wonderful and taught me everything that I know. And I also figured out that that was a passion. 
that I could not go on without trying to understand discovery and uncovering it. And remember, I'm Irish, so I'm pretty stubborn. I was going to stay with it no matter what. Hard work is not a problem. <laughs> um, and yet it's kind of really exciting when then it started to work or then you get some papers published or you get a grant. It was incredible. At that time, I was then at Mass General and in the Harvard system. And I would have to say it was it is fabulous having this sort of sort of intellectual cadre of everyone thinking and working. And I, I really, I have to thank all my current lab members, or my past lab members, most of whom were PhD, several other MDs, and who are still my friends and review a lot of what is going on. I want to stop there to say it's not exactly what you think. If you had looked at me early on when I'm describing a childhood committed to really care primarily of patients, and now I see that as integrative, um, you could have knocked me over with a feather. That was not in my plan at all. And I was not good at it. Let me tell you, this was not something that I, I had a gift for, but I, I cared about it and that's another part. Um, I, I would also say that this part about health equality that I brought up, I think is, is germane to my DNA. That's why I brought up my parents. And that has really been reflected in just about every professional position that I've had that I don't see that as separate and distinct. And it's very important to me where I work and what I can move forward to. I can give you, if that's helpful, Alfredo, stop and then sort of say first faculty positions or however you would like, what would be helpful? Well, this, the, the, thank you so much for, for uh, uh, it's such a fascinating story. And, you know, it, it's, it, whenever I hear these stories as an immigrant myself, it's just part of the American experience, right? And it's just so, so beautiful to, uh, to hear. Um, one question I had for you about your training, um, you did residency at, at, in the Bronx at Albert Einstein. When did you decide to, to, to go into pulmonary? Oh, okay, so this is a really good question. As you recall, I had done rotations in medical school, I had gone to California, did rotations in urban and family medicine. Uh, while I was in medical school, I did a rotation and they had in the Bronx sort of this whole pulmonary unit. And I did my, part of my general medicine training on that unit. There was a world-class physician leader there. I remember him to this day. It was his kindness, his mentorship um, that really, I think, attracted me. And that's why you can change lives. It wasn't as though I said, man, I love the lung. I got to do the lung. It was really that this person was pretty extraordinary. And I wanted to model him and be like him. I, I would never be like him exactly. He was male, older. I uh, had many years, uh, you know, trained in a different time, but it was that kindness and ability to take care of patients. So that was really thinking about it, I think, during medical school. And then when I did my residency, I quite honestly toyed with many things, back to primary care, really looked long and hard at endocrine. I thought that was kind of fun. Um, Full disclosure, I really thought my heart and soul was to be an OBGYN and wound up in internal medicine because I wanted to do everything. So I'm, I'm just letting everybody know you have to go with your heart, soul, and passion. In the end, you don't really know. And I think what I had said to myself is, I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to figure out something else. Because yep. up until then, that's what the key, that's the best part about medicine is that you can still try to 
work it to a way that works for you. That is a great answer. And I think it's something that I, that I tell residents too. The hardest thing is, 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 is finding that, that passion sometimes. Some people are, know what they want to do, and that's awesome. Uh, but, but sometimes you're not sure. You, you want to, and, and you, know, you might like different things. Uh, and uh, you know, trying things is the way of you know, either realizing that you could fall in love with something or not. And you say, you know what, maybe endocrine is not for me. Uh, and then you, you try something else and you do a rotation or you do research and you say, wow, this is really awesome. Um, the other thing is you mentioned how you like different things um, from OB to family. And it, there's, a, there's like, I, I can see a thread of just liking the, the interaction and the primary care that, that all of these different things have. Because OB has it, family has it, internal medicine has it. And then similarly, you know, with pulmonary, there's so much of the disparities uh, that, that happen with, with pulmonary medicine, like asthma, and how you know certain communities have more than others. Um, so there's so much I think that is interconnected. Um, I totally overuse this quote, but I always say that to to residents and fellows. Um, Confucius said, "Wheresoever you go, go with all your heart." Uh, I think you know, no matter how hard it is, you know, when you started working with the lab, uh, it, it's probably daunting and scary and different. But that's where your heart was and everything else doesn't matter you know if you find something with passion figure it out and the other part i will tell you so eventually then when i did go on to pulmonary critical care so i was at mass general and what i decided is i was going to be the primary care doctor in the icu so families came in and in that 24 48 hours they needed me to be their primary care doctor and i felt so how did I, how did I sort of reconcile this primary care goal with, you know, oh, high level medicine and let's think about the vent and how's going on. I thought that what I needed to do was say, I'm their person and that that was really important. A part that I, how I have fed my passion, which uh, is also um, something that again fed my soul is I felt I didn't, wasn't prepared. And this is as I became an attending later at the Brigham and at Mass General. I wasn't really prepared to deal with families in the right way. So I actually got certified in um, palliative care and I took a course with uh, nurses and you know oncologists and social workers because we were trying to grapple with the pilot from the NIH. It was really important to me to say that no matter how empathy we may have, we need training in that. And that's something I, I think about a lot in how we teach our next generation that sometimes we need those principles and those role modeling. That's why I brought up the role modeling of the pulmonary physician. I mean, how he was really, I think, set the stage for me, how I wanted to be later in life. That's awesome. Um, so then as you transition towards, towards uh, faculty, well, before that, uh, did you do any research projects as a resident or a fellow? Um, what, what tips you, could, you, could you give about your experience there? I have no tips because I was useless. I did not do anything. <laughs> Remember, I told you I had the interest, but I, again, let's go back to our families. I didn't have a role, and I see that from our residents. You know, you, I didn't have someone to say, what well, research. And I know we think a lot about how do you get exposure to research. It, you know, you really need some help and you need a community to say, hey, you can do this. So I did zero. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't even know it was an option. Full disclosure, the reason I went into medicine is so I'd never have to publicly speak. I'd never have to be the face for anybody. I was the shyest child you ever saw in your life. So I want everybody to know that. 
my brother and sister cannot believe I'm the one doing it. Yeah, because I, I just, so, you know, things change and you evolve. Um, so I learned then probably not until really fellowship, how important it was. And by then I hadn't, you know, had not really had exposure. And it wasn't because probably there were plenty of opportunities in my peer group but I didn't take full advantage and I didn't even know that you could or would. So I'm, I feel when I have a residence and students coming to me, how do you do it? I am very sympathetic. And it's again, probably my own fault for not looking at it, but I didn't understand. And I didn't understand how much I would love it. You know, I, I just came into it with an open mind because I knew nothing about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so then you, you progressed in your career and, and uh, your faculty, you're working in the lab. Um, first question there is you know you what were your 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 first kind of uh, uh, career kind of research milestones what were you studying and where did that take you so my first milestones as I said is I'm an immunologist so I worked on transcriptional regulation of t-cells uh, T lymphocytes. Um, I just happened to work in that lab there's as I told you it was a incredible my my co lab members were really the ones that taught me. For those of you working in science, you know there's a P20 and a P200 and they're very different in what you bring up. I didn't know the difference between those for those who are savvy about that. So I would be using the wrong instrument for everything instead of laughing at me, which I'm sure they did, they helped. So um, my first milestones really hunt to do, and this is in thinking about if you want an investigative career, and I'm very careful about ever calling it research, I always call it scholarly activities because everybody is involved in scholarly activities and it's that whole team science approach, um, is that it became very clear that you had to show evidence of productivity, right? So I would never send you to the ICU to intubate without actually learning, without evidence of practice, where's the data that you can do it. It's the same way in a research project. Can you think about what the controls are? Can you get some results that are reproducible? Can you communicate them to the outside world? So for me, those first were um, uh, publishing, second were uh, getting grants, and then third was really communicating and understanding what it may mean. It, you really require an army of mentors for that because you, it's not just who's your research mentor, it's who's your other mentor. And, I was very lucky in that I had several um, other faculty that I could go to or exhibited interest or cared or whatever. I was really actually blessed. Um, and just as an aside, if we're gonna talk about women in medicine, which we should, because this is Women in Medicine Month. Yes. Almost every single mentor was a man and was white and was fabulous and really fostered and pushed uh, us through. And, and I think, that has a lot to say. You know, women got the right to vote, not because women were able to vote, but because men voted it in. So <laughs> just thinking about we all have the opportunity to help in different ways. So I think, that, again, the cachet was your ability to, to, you know, grants and manuscripts and papers and communication. And it's also what I call moxie, grit. You just got to stay with it. Trust me, my first grant was completely demolished, destroyed. You know how I got up from that. I closed the door and went, okay, it's just business, and then we move on. And that is the, that you're talking about, what have you learned from that? Even to this day, I still get grants that have gotten horrible reviews. I do the same thing, close the door, cry for a moment, and then go back out. And, and I think that's the fun part, because you can always recraft and, and really find, again, that joy. 
Yeah, and I think our, our career does help us generate some reservoir of resilience. And to all the residents listening out there, we felt, I certainly did felt quite inadequate my intern year and wondering if I was doing a good job and closing the door and, and, and asking, you know, am I going to get through this call night or whatnot? And you get better and you get, you know, resilient and you, and you keep on taking different new challenges and, and getting through it. One of my uh, co-chief residents says it best every time we, we talk about what's going on in our lives. Uh, he, he, he tells me that he goes through a cycle of getting something new, uh, you know, work-wise, feeling overwhelmed or, or not sure if he's going to do a good job, getting through it and then starting something new again and feeling the same way. So I think um, getting that reservoir of resilience for all of us in training, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to feel overwhelmed sometimes, but you'll get through it. And that's, I think, a, a good lesson for, for all of us. You will get through it and there's an army to help you. And all you have to do is ask. And if you say to somebody else, God, are you feeling like completely overwhelmed? You'll probably get every hand in the room. So one time I had a Zoom with like whatever, 20 other faculty. And I said, okay, everybody feeling overwhelmed, raise their hand. I was the first one there. And <laughs> I said, okay, now we, if we can name and frame it, that's the most important part. And, and I think it's, that's actually, when we go to leadership, maybe that's one thing. I thought mm -hmm. if I could bring that same sense to lead, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure Obama at some point woke up, said, I want to be president. I, I did not wake up and say, I want to be chair. Um, and again, my family's kind of shocked at where I'm at, as I told you. I'm actually inherently have, um, here's a, just so everybody knows, I hated giving public speaking to the point where I would never use anything that had a, a pointer or anything where you could see my hands shaking. I really had to learn how to do it. So I'm just giving you an overcoming a barrier. I was the uh, essentially try to practice. I would tape myself. Oh my God, so difficult. You watch yourself, but you learn through practice and you also learn to, to learn from others and have them uh, watch you. And, and, you know, that's where I think team approach is incredible. But um, I decided that uh, it's not that you grow up and say you want to be powerful. You want to be in a position where you can make a difference. That is what's so important to me. It's not only setting the agenda, but it's trying to implement and being forward in that place. That's one reason why UIC was attractive to me, because I felt at no point would I be told, you know, we really can't see that kind of patient or this kind of patient. And regardless of I understand we have a lot of challenges now. We haven't even talked about COVID, but I feel, and having been at Harvard and at UCSD, both fabulous institutions, um, but I feel here there is inherent in everyone that comes here that knows that we care about providing exceptional care for everybody who walks in the door. And that's regardless if they have private planes or they have uh, bus fare or not even bus fare. And I think that is the key. That's why I enjoy it. I think using that ability or to be able to craft or to set it for young people, I derive tremendous satisfaction out of that. That's kind of like my transacting factor that's turned on. That's awesome. Um, you transitioned through, through different leadership roles, uh, both in, in, in the many institutions uh, in California and, and uh, you know, you, you, you kind of moved towards those positions and uh, you also played a role in the ATS and some of these major societies. Can you tell a little, tell us a little bit about those roles as well, being you know in a leadership role in a national society? 
Sure. So let me talk about the leadership roles in natural society, and then I'll go back to leadership in other position. Mm-hmm. So the leadership roles in other society actually start out with, I think, being a people servant. So I'm a, a was a past president of the American Thoracic Society. That's the largest sort of uh, institute or society that deals with pulmonary care. So it's pulmonary critical care physicians, but also advanced nurse practitioners, a number of others in other fields, and very uh, intent on scholarly activity and quality care, has a yearly meeting, really fun. So this has to, how do you make a difference? Where's your volunteerism and where your service? So early on, I decided I want to have a voice, and that voice also has to do with having a voice at the political level and on the day-to-day level and however. So that actually means putting um, some elbow grease to it. So I, I worked uh, in different um, volunteer um, uh, opportunities. So that means that you'll either be on a committee that can be incredibly satisfying or you mentor other folks or you review grants or you're you know, one of the big mouths going up to the hill, which is what I was for whatever, uh, you know, e-cigarettes are being sold to young people with candy flavors, all of these things. Um, What happens then, I think, and that's why I I believe there are different modes to leadership, those who say, that's it, and I'm going after it, and those to whom it kind of happens as you're doing your thing. I'm probably in the latter. It's not to say I'm not ambitious, and I want everybody to say ambition is not a bad thing. It's what you do with it. But I, as I've reflected upon it, it's kind of just going ahead and seeing what's the long game, what I want to do. So in doing that, you get a little bit of sort of noted, and then people make suggestions. Then it's up to you to say yes or no. So then the first thing is, will you accept to be nominated at this? And then you say, well, okay, yes or no. It doesn't mean you'll get it. Trust me, I've had plenty of things that I don't get. That's where it gets back to like grants that aren't or positions you don't get or you know, hurdles that you have. You have to just say, okay, what's the long game? What does that mean? Um, and I, I, uh, I, it's it kind of evolved through time. And then I thought, well, if I took this leadership position, which is actually a five-year leadership, what would be important to me? Um, and I thought what was really important is health equality. And you're saying, wait, what does that mean? And is that a theme that we could put in a in a really sustainable model in a healthcare organization. If you go back and look at my platform and pictures, I, I talked about health equality writ large and how do we speak about it as a health issue? What's the diversity of our membership, of our leadership? Do we have fellowships that can really look at health equality relative to respiratory disease? You already brought it up. You know, environmental hazards disproportionately affect underrepresented minorities and those of lowest economic status. Um, you know, and if you have asthma and you're an African-American, you're three times as likely to die from asthma. I mean, let's just put that right out there. So, um, and now when we think about COVID and respiratory distress and who's in our ICU, these are really important parameters. But I use that and I'm really proud and, and that was a way, and trust me, we had several conservative members in that institution say healthcare is essentially important and we have to think about health equality as germane to the best care of our patients with pulmonary disease. So I was honored and, and really with a group of folks, including Dean Schroffnagel, who is a former ATS president who uh, was here as a, is here as a faculty member. Uh, we wrote a, uh, you know, several um, sort of uh, position papers about how important that was. So that was incredibly satisfying. So yes, the power is fun and you like it, 
Um, but the other part is what can you do with that? So that was at the, and I encourage everybody, it is so much fun. And if you're thinking about promotion and moving forward, how do you get reward on a bigger platform? If you want to talk about my other positions, in some ways, I had decided I would be kind of happily in my lab with my ICU rotation and moving forward. And out of the blue, one day, it is true, received a call saying, hey, we'd like you to be considered for this chief of pulmonary. And this is a true story. I said, wait, I'm Patricia Finn, right? I just want to make sure they had the right name because I was quietly doing my thing. And that is in some ways what I said. So you can look on the website, who got NIH grants, who published, and that's how I found me. And from there, then I began to consider it. And I do think it's important for thinking about women and underrepresented minorities. You don't know what you don't know. And sometimes it's important to make sure that the, you have provided opportunities for everybody there who may or may not push those forward, who may not have the background or the bandwidth to think about it and really supporting them because um, you really don't know if you're a leader until you're put in that position to lead. And you don't know if you're a leader unless you have people following you because there isn't a point. Did you want to say something, Alfredo? I, one question about uh, these different uh, uh, opportunities and your trajectory, uh, going back a little bit on diversity, there's so much disparities in opportunity and even in salary and all these other objective and subjective things between men and women in the workplace and in medicine. Uh, did you have to deal with any of that? Did you have any challenges that, uh, you know, that might be a good story to, to tell and, and how they were over, overcome? I do. I, I think... All you have to do is kind of look in the room. Even to this day, it's not unusual for me to be the only woman leader in a, depending on the situation. And I can't imagine being an underrepresented minority and a woman in that position because that also happens. So it is still uh, uh, unsettling, quite honestly. And as you know from implicit and uh, explicit bias, there are still a lot of barriers in thinking about, well, Mm, maybe not quite right for this, right? So there are ways where you can ensure that folks do not move up the ladder by basically viewing them in a different way, if they're male or female or underrepresented uh, minority in medicine or not. I think personally, the reason I raised my story is that my mentors were male, but I, that didn't necessarily mean that everybody said, okay, great, women can do everything. Please observe, we don't still have a woman president, just saying. But I think that uh, what it meant is to keep that tough skin. And it, it also meant that if I could think about how to frame um, what I wanted to get out of a, a situation that that was more important, that I told you already, I actually had a very shy background and I felt it was more important to be able to speak with the force of what I thought was right. Um, I will tell you, if you're talking about where are my barriers, sometimes that passion is then interpreted in the classic way of she's too over aggressive, she's, you know, whatever you want to say about an aggressive woman. But I think uh, that's one thing I had to learn to really tighter to making sure my message is what became not the tone of my voice or whatever. I, I do feel that that has happened. I, I also feel that um, uh, sometimes it's much more subtle. Uh, in in some ways, and that can be very disconcerting, uh, and that I still feel to this day. 
Um, and I'm sure I, you know, for all those coming through, uh, it's never as, well, you're not a woman, you're not going to get it, or you're under, it's kind of, well, you're not quite qualified. So um, we have to just think about what our, what our standards and our barriers are. Um, I will say that it's, uh, there is clearly a voice in an army to talk about that. And that's been great. And I will say I am very committed to fostering careers for women and underrepresented minorities. I think that is, uh, in general, <laughs> committed to careers for our next generation because that's our legacy. Um, you know, what we do is much less important than um, who we've impacted and we've left behind. And then if we do a good enough job with the next generation, they'll do a fabulous job with the next generation. And, and that's how stuff gets paid forward and backwards and everything. That's awesome, Dr. Finn. And I think, uh, you know, we just went through a, a historic time. I mean, we're still in that historic time, uh, the challenges that 2020 has brought to us in medicine with COVID. And I think it touches on, on everything, right? It touches on clinical care, it touches on disparities, it touches on, um, you know, on, on everything. Uh, is there anything you wanna share about all of this? Um, you know, especially in your position of leadership, I, I do want to say that our entire institution has, has worked. It, it's, 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 you know, terrible times, of course, these aren't positive times, but it's, it's, it's great to see the positive in how much people have worked with each other and helped each other. And, you know, we're, we've certainly, I think, stepped up to the plate. And, and that includes even leadership and, and, and people in all areas of the hospital. Uh, you know, to have a department head stop by on a Saturday on a team room to see if everybody's doing okay. Uh, I think those things show who we are and, and what we value. But, you know, I wanted to, to, to give you the space to, to maybe tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on all of these months of, of, of COVID and what it has meant to us and to, to our population. I would love to, and I think I'll probably get emotional um, because it, it has touched all of us. For the first time, I can actually speak to you without a mask, so that says everything. I think early on when it first uh, struck, I had no idea of the caliber or what, but as I have told you, for every other challenge, you just moxie and grit to get through it. I think what has impacted me most is uh, the faces spirit of everyone around me, that's faculty, trainees, and staff. I agree with you. Indefatigable spirit is what I say. I absolutely inspired by what everybody has done. But I will tell you there have been some tough days. Walking through, I try to go during the weekday and the week just to check in. And I think I would be moved to tears on more than one occasion. I had to step out of the room because um, it wasn't as though we could solve everything, but the anguish on people's faces to see an intern talk about having someone die without a family member there and how to really, or to have five deaths in an ICU at night, or to have someone worry. And we had so many faculty members who either themselves are immunocompromised or lives with a spouse or a parent or a child's immunocompromised. We have faculty members that have lived in the basement for five months because they can't risk it or others that have taken hotel rooms. I am telling you to be able to see that is totally inspirational, but to also worry about all of you. And I think that's my job as a leader to ensure that I am fighting for you in, in every way, that not only is that recognized, but that we acknowledge that it's difficult and it's five months going on six. 
I have to confess to you, Alfredo, that I, like you, have now reread um, The Plague by Camus, and I am struck by decency. I've also tried to read in other situations, how do we evolve out of it? And um, in some ways, I think that is all we can share as humanity. As you know, I've also been very focused on how do we think about our wellness in this? And I was struck by it. it was actually pretty funny. The rounds originally started with myself and other leaders just to see how we can check in. Oh my goodness, do you need another team room? You know, how many admissions did you got? And then on Saturdays, we would go with our psychiatry colleagues and somehow they all started to be calling the wellness rounds. Well, it didn't mean that we were having well, but at least there was a space to say, feeling a little overwhelmed. And I, I think, uh, I'm sure we can handle whatever comes and there is power in it, but it's just to say it was very moving and it, it's something that I try to deal. You know, I do a fair amount of yoga. I'm really horrible at meditating, although I really try. And I think that's, um, uh, you know, just something to pause and acknowledge it. I call it, you have to name it and frame it in order to move on in the same way that racism and sexism is just not only misogyny, homophobia, we have to be able to all stand up regardless of who we are and say something that we have to say something for the fact that everyone has stood there. And I, I would say, what became particularly difficult is after the death of George Floyd. That's not a separate, distinct instant. That is not separate. That is imbuing everything. Our entire ICU was flooded with URMs, underrepresented minorities in medicine who were severely hit, and that impacted all of us. So, so that, those are just, we have to name it and frame it, acknowledge of what it is. But um, you didn't ask me why I came to UIC, but that will lead to it. Um, I was in sunny San Diego as the pulmonary critical care division and had visited here as a visiting professor. So I had some sense of the quality and joy of the faculty members and the commitment of the trainees and everybody. So when the call came to look at the chair position, I didn't say, wait, is that University of California, Chicago? Because I didn't know the difference before I got here. But I am so um, thrilled that really that whole spirit and that team spirit has kept me going and it's one reason why I love being here. That's awesome, Dr. Finn. Um, and I know we are at the top of the hour. Uh, I, I just want to mention with regard to COVID that um, hearing, hearing you speak about it, I think is part of the reason why it, though it was difficult and remains difficult, I think we all feel like we're supporting each other and um, that is something that no one should take for granted that, you know, your coworkers and the leadership in your, in your institution, uh, you know, starting with Dr. Finn, but including Dr. Zar, including everybody in between, they, they really care and have cared throughout all of this about our well-beings and, and our, our well-being. And uh, that's, that's, I think, uh, helps give us fuel and, you know, gave us fuel during, during difficult weeks. So I think it's important to note note that because it's um, it, it, it's not everywhere that you that you get the opportunity work with to work with uh, with people that would do the same. Um, and with that, Dr. Finn, I think uh, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been uh, uh, great talking to you. Um, you've had a, an amazing trajectory and amazing uh, you know amazing stories to share with our residents and students. Um, and I thank you very much for your time. 
Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I look forward to chatting again. Definitely. <laughs> Such a pleasure, Alfredo. You take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye.